I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Bougainville, the main island of the autonomous region of Bougainville, which is part of Papua New Guinea. For now. <laughs> Located around a thousand kilometers east of the mainland capital of Port Moresby, Bougainville is the most remote area of Papua New Guinea's 19 provinces. Bougainville is the largest island in the Solomon Island archipelago, lying around 1,500 kilometers or 1,000 miles off the northeast coast of Australia in the Solomon Sea. Most of the islands in this archipelago, which are primarily concentrated in the southern and eastern portions, are part of the politically independent Solomon Islands. At around 3,500 square miles, or just under 9,000 square kilometers, Bougainville is comparable in size to Hawaii's largest island, Puerto Rico, or Cyprus. Residents here speak Tok Pisim, a pidgin language spoken widely in this region, in addition to as many as 20 different indigenous languages depending on where they're from. And the region currently has a population of around 250,000. Inhabited by humans for at least 29,000 years, Bougainville was first discovered by Europeans in 1616 and was named for the French explorer Louis-Antoine de Bougainville, one of the first people to circumnavigate the globe. The German Empire annexed present-day Bougainville in 1886, before the islands were occupied in 1914 by Australia during World War I. Taken by Japan in 1942, the islands were fought over by both sides during the latter years of World War II and have retained a secessionist streak since the mid-1960s. However, tensions between different factions remain unresolved to this day, and while officially the island is an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea, many still push for independence, particularly following a bloody 10-year civil war which concluded in 1997. So. That is Bougainville or Bougainville. Uh, we've settled on Bougainville, <laughs> or some of us have. I was gonna, I was, was going to query that, yeah, because I mean, it's 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 named after the kind of you know poor man's French Captain Cook, and we've 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 said his name quite a few times, and I've, I've enjoyed saying his name a few times. I just think this is how it's pronounced by anyone we've heard from here talking about it. Seems to say Bougainville. Yeah, any videos I've watched, I've, I've and said then Bougainville. Talk it's spelled B O. G-A-N rather than... So I just think uh, Bougainville is a bit, I don't know... Um, Luke, it's great! For, um, for <laughs> it's, it's like brioche. The local pronunciation. It's not the first place to pronounce it, itself differently to the random the intended spell, uh, figure intended who pronunciation. named it after them. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the locals were not precious so, about it. You know, it, it seems to be... A, both seem acceptable. Um, so we'll probably... All right, I'll... Do what you like. <laughs> I'll, I'll force myself to say Bougainville, even though it feels a bit feels a bit off. You'll get used to it, Mark. Let's see, Joe. What are you looking forward to talking about today? I am looking forward to the unexpected episode where an elaborate con artist becomes a king, because I did not see it coming. Okay, uh, Mark. What are you What are you looking forward to talking about? 
maybe one of my favorite uh, geographical place names. I mean, th- there was the, the the town of Dildo in Newfoundland. <laughs> that was that was certainly a, a contender. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is this is this is kind of uh, knocking on the door of the pantheon. Wow. This one as well. Stiff competition there. If you'll excuse me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wobbly competition. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about one of the world's most uh, significant mines, uh, both in terms of the wealth that it's produced uh, for this area, but also in the way that it's shaped so much more of of, uh, of Bougainville's history. Really, oh it's, yeah, it's, that that can't be understated. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I don't think any any kind of physical piece of geography has had such a such an impact on um, I, on a place. I mean, we came close in Nauru with the Nauru. phosphate. Nauru is, is the only yeah. one that I could think of. Yeah, yeah. so. And, you know, uh, spoiler, but Nauru and Bougainville were briefly part of the same territory in the German era. Mm. So, you know, over-extraction of natural resources isn't unknown in the, in the general neighbourhood. Let's kick off with some early history. The earliest of early history, uh, the geology of the island, it, we're in a a volcano friendly zone here so the islands are are largely volcanic there is a bit of uh, sedimentary rock as well um but the the islands started growing pretty organically 45 million years ago uh, best guess and uh, still lots of volcanoy flavored action there to this day the main kind of embodiment of this is a volcano called uh, bagana which is 1730 meters high uh with kind of pretty much continuous eruptions Oh, wow. Yeah, there's also a few kind of more dormant volcanoes. There's one called uh, Loloru, which I think has a lake at the summit. And uh, there's a crater lake at uh, Billy Mitchell Volcano as well. Uh, which Excuse is me? Th- 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 yeah, Billy Mitchell. Uh, there, there's a lot of kind of uh, mixed place names here. Uh, as well can, as one I mentioned yeah, earlier. You can say that again. The other two sound a bit more authentic. Yeah. Than yeah. Billy, Mich- Billy Mitchell. Why do I know that name? Was he in the Bee Gees? Well, I think he might have been on the EastEnders or something. Yeah, there's a lot of Billy Mitchells, yeah. Uh, th- this Billy Mitchell was the, I think, the the father of the U.S. Air Force. So it was this this oh. mountain was named in his honor. Right. I think he, he kind of left the U.S. Armed Forces before World War II and was one of these guys, kind of like Churchill, jumping up and down saying, you need to be doing this. You need to be preparing the armed forces. War is coming. War is coming. And no one really listened. And he got uh, demoted a lot because of his insubordinates. But uh, yeah, I think he, this was named after him in his in his honor. Once they realized he was right, uh, because they had to go to Bougainville, Bougainville to, to you know, uh, sort, some, sort some people out. Um, anyway, both of these uh, volcanoes I mentioned, Lolaru and, and Billy Mitchell, are potential sources of catastrophic mud flows, apparently, if they were hit mm. by a strong enough earthquake. So they're still pretty dangerous. Um, the airfall ash deposits from uh, an eruption of Billy Mitchell about a thousand years ago covered most of the northern half of the island up oh, to wow. depths of about a half meter. So they're Rush. they're big, they're serious. Eruption of Billy Mitchell just doesn't sound very threatening. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, I... Again, in a kind of London East End kind of way. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh Billy. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of thing. But um, exactly. anyway, so lot, lots of volcanoes. Um, earthquakes as well, kind of implied. Uh, Bougainville and Buka uh, are both at risk uh, from that. And tsunamis, which I'll mention in a second. Um, but yeah, they're, they're in a general hot zone, as it were. Lots of earthquakes. 
Just when you mentioned Buka there, Mark, we should probably just yeah. say that. Oh uh, yeah, of course. It's a it's a neighboring island, right? It's a like very neighboring, very neighboring. Yeah, but quite a bit smaller and, and kind than of, Bogenville. So, so what, how do we do? We know how wide Buka Strait is between the two islands. It's very narrow. It's very small. Like I believe there's no bridge, but it's it's the two kind of come together as a package. Mm. Uh, when you're talking about any kind of history, yeah. um, Buka's significantly smaller than Bougainville, but they're right beside each other. They were joined la- landmass for a long time as well. They're all part of the same okay. landmass for, for quite a while too, you know, in, in the millions of years ago kind of area. Mm. Anyway, tsunamis. Um, the coastline of Bougainville gets, I, I didn't know this, it's apparently near source and far source tsunamis. It kind of makes sense when you think about it. But uh, near source come from, you know, just off the coast and far source come from very far away. Uh, so the kind of 2005 one would be an example of a far source, uh, assuming you were far enough away from it. Um, but the the near source ones is an example of that from 1975 that kind of damaged some of the infrastructure. And a far source one was uh, in 1952, which came from Kamchatka in the northern Pacific uh, wow. off of uh, Russia. So, yeah, um, they have there's apparently a Pacific tsunami warning system, uh, which... Um, Bougainville uh, is is helped by provides emailed warnings of far source tsunamis, but um, they have no way of knowing if a near source one comes. It'll just come straight away, pretty much. Yeah, it's too too fast to predict. Can, can I just say, Mark? I sure. Say when you're when you're talking about it being a hot zone, we should probably mention the climate. It's really, really, really hot too. Oh, sure. Uh, it's like I, I looked at the weather charts. And it's like but, you know, lows of twenty two, highs of thirty two degrees Celsius all year. Oh God! And right. I think plenty, plenty of rain. Lots of jungle. You know, the earth's on fire, and and, and the air is uh, not much better. Is, mm. Wet yeah. fire. The air is wet, wet fire. So just to, to flag that here, in case we forget to mention it, you can imagine the coconuts falling off the trees onto the the volcanic beaches, if you like. That's mm-hmm. kind of where we are. Cool. Um, so in in archaeology, you can basically look at kind of there's two big stages to talk about. There's the kind of the, the Papuan and the um, Austronesian migrations. So the Papuan was from twenty nine thousand years ago. Uh, it was kind of discovered by uh, a guy called uh, Stephen Wickler uh, from nineteen eighty eight. He he realized that um, rather than three thousand years ago being the kind of earliest habitation, it was actually many 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 thousands of years ago, about twenty nine thousand, as I say. Um, and these were kind of two big different steps. Uh, the the twenty nine thousand years ago one was sort of a a, a Papuan link, so I guess people coming from n- nearby islands, um, the Papuan landmass, etc. Uh, but the kind of the 3000 years ago one was uh, a different culture called the Lapita culture, uh, who kind of mm. spread down along the island chain coming from Bali. And I think we've even encountered them in other areas as well. Like they, they were we've met them before. So like the ancestors of Polynesians. Right? Yeah. And they came through Taiwan and arguably. I think New Caledonia. We talked about them as well, possibly. Pr- probably. Probably yeah. too as well. Mm. Yeah, as I mentioned, Bougainville was a part of a wider landmass called Greater Bougainville, uh, including the islands of Buca and uh, the Shortland Islands, which are kind of to the south of Bougainville as well. So settlement, as I say, it was, was probably 29,000 years ago, but was probably, probably before then, because there's just evidence of it going back 29,000 years ago, but kind of neighboring areas were, were settled kind of long before then as well. So potentially 50, 60,000 years ago, uh, hard to say. Just kind of give you a flavor of, of these people. So stone tools um, probably obtained uh, locally you know, from river cobbles, etc. They found grain residue on some of the stones, which um, suggested that they were probably used to kind of cut and scrape something called taro. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if we've talked about taro before, which it, it, 
I, I had forgotten about it if we had, uh, but kind of similar to yams um, and uh, taro corms, uh, which mm. is a very strange word to hear or say, uh, were our food staple across uh, Africa and uh, South Asian cultures. So they're kind of a starchy root, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, again, like not, like a, like not a yam. unlike a potato, maybe. It's very, it's very popular yeah, in Asia. Popular. I had it on a pizza yeah. in Taiwan one time. All right, it was okay. not bad actually. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly, I think so. they were one of the canoe crops that went with the. Um, you know the, the peoples expanding into the Polynesian triangle and stuff. So they 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 were brought on canoes from island to island, going out to New Zealand, Hawaii, Easter Island, hmm. along oh, okay. with you know coconuts and and um, bamboo and various other useful crops. So things that would grow everywhere in this region and hmm. I, I, reliable the, food the, source. The timing of this suggests that they were kind of endemic. They they, they weren't brought in so. I mean, they were probably brought to other areas from this kind of area, but uh, yeah. But I think that later on, there's this evidence of them being farmed and stuff as well. So it, it all adds up. So um, other things that were found in the area kind of suggest a, a broader uh, diet. There was a shell midden, so kind of waste pile. Uh, there was marine fish bones. There was bones from land animals, including five species of Solomon Island rat, including two that were new discoveries, the, the Solomis sprigsarum and the Melomispecti, apparently. Um, they ate bats, reptiles, lizards, snakes, um, and it looks like whole animals were brought to the site and butchered there. Um, but um, apparently, about, anything going? Yeah, pretty pretty much everything they could kind of get their hands on. And about twenty thousand to ten thousand years ago, the site was abandoned. Uh, not really a good idea why. Then, as I say, there's this kind of second stage, which is three thousand years ago, is the Lapita culture, uh, or you know, the Austronesian culture. Um, they're best known for a kind of a characteristic pottery decorated with tooth-like little indentations and stamps, creating complicated patterns, including, for example, a human face. Um, they were a fully agricultural lifestyle, so um, they brought in domestic pigs, dogs, chickens, and they also hunted because there was a pattern of apparent extinctions of birds and endemic mammals uh, in Buka uh, once the Lapitas uh, turned up. So, uh, oh. you know, mi- oh, mixed. people. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pe- such a people thing to people, do. People peopling away. The, one other kind of thing to mention in the archaeology section is something that's kind of, it's a bit more recent, but it was these stone arrangements called Siguro, uh, which were single upright stones and megaliths or stone tables made of large boulders or capstones propped on other smaller stones. Um, and they were kind of in circles or ovals, sometimes associated with traditions of cremation. Um, and then the stone tables were said to have been food displays for feasts. But uh, they're kind of archaeology, but kind of more recent archaeology in that way. So again, I mentioned these kind of two big stages. That's also kind of how the individual, um, you know, what whatever you might want to call them, kind of social groups or or whatever kind of uh, are divided into kind of Austronesian and non-Austronesian uh, and then the languages are the same as well so they are kind of are rooted in that kind of 29,000 years ago migration or the kind of more recent 3,000 years ago migration so the, the more recent one the Austronesian languages uh, are believed to have originated in as I said kind of before you know Taiwan, southern China, etc., you know, thousands of years ago, migrating through uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Southeast Asia, etc., etc. The biggest group is about 20,000 people, and they're the Halia, and the smallest group is the Nuguria, and they're about 200. So they kind of... The, these are modern-day modern descended yep. from, from these Austronesian speakers. D- d- defined by their language, yeah. So these okay. are kind of specific language groups. Uh, Bougainville has about equal numbers of speakers of Austronesian and Papuan languages, but there are approximately twice as many Austronesian as opposed to Papuan languages spoken. So there's there's more wow. kind of diversity in language in the Austronesian group. Mark, I had a look at that that excellent book you sent us. Oh, yes. Mm. 
the um, what was it before the conflict? I yeah, it's called collection of really good essays on everything. Yeah, and they had some really fascinating comments in there on how like these languages stayed separate for so long. It, know, it, like, it is it is really weird that they've like so like that the, the roots are so clearly defined even now and there's, there's a bit of kind mm. of differences in geological distribution but kind of where austronesian speakers live and papuan speakers live i mean the sub languages as well and, and there's there's little exclaves and stuff there's a there's a little bit of you know and it's kind of the, the account that's there of a bit of borrowing and exchanging in terms of kind of mm, practices of between the groups but it, it doesn't really suggest that that happened with the languages that they are still pretty kind of distinct in terms of their roots but yeah no, it suggests it's, it's pretty hard to you know get around the island in the deep pass because the jungles and the mountains people more or less maybe stayed put for long enough periods of time uh, yes, and I think I think that also kind of dictates some of the relative sizes of these groups because some mm. of these groups have access to like whatever counts for a plain in Bougainville, uh, whereas some people are kind of hemmed in between two volcanoes. So you know it's yeah it's very different kinds of groups we're talking about here. <clears throat> so I'm going to mention two specific groups just because they were just two of the examples uh, given. They kind of have some uh, interesting just bits of flavors to kind of. Uh, what was happening? So the first I'm going to talk about is the uh, Nasioi is is how I'm going to attempt to pronounce that. Uh, so N A S I O I. They all belong to named matrilineal clans. Okay. So um, at the same time, not all members of a clan would live together, but they would be kind of dispersed around uh, an entire uh, Nasioi territory. There were residence rules which specified that a newlywed couple should set up their their household in the bride's village. Um, interestingly, women had status uh, which was uh, kind of complementary rather than subordinate to that of men. Uh, they had a, a specific role as gardeners, uh, which produced the bulk of village subsistence. So they're you know really really important in producing food. So that kind of gave them a lot of uh, social acceptance. Uh, this was highly valued, as I say, and as was their place in maintaining the continuity of the clan. They did have uh, leaders, um, Nassoi leaders, uh, men called Obering, um, and they kind of fell into the bracket of, of the, the big man kind of thing. They're, mm. you know, um, influential and, and whatnot. Um, but they described the, the most important qualities of a good Obering to be generosity, industry and knowledge um, and to be able to kind of give a, a good feast and to be able to resource a good feast as well. And uh, if he was, you know, not giving good enough feasts or if he was kind of throwing his weight around a bit too much and, and disturbing the harmony, uh, somebody might accuse him of being a sorcery uh, person and that would be the end of him. So, you know, nice. there's, yeah, there was uh, good checks and balances, albeit not kind of in a system, what kind of way, but uh, it, it so seemed you weren't, for them. So you didn't, you weren't the, the big man because your dad was the big man, but exactly. it probably didn't hurt if you were also charismatic and and well resourced sort of, and yeah. and good at yeah keeping people on side so yeah um, fairly standard uh you know f- fairly standard practice in sort of tribal societies from europe to south america it's you know? it's 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 politics without yeah. the voting is, is mm. what it is yeah um, who's, who's gonna look after us uh, this guy's doing okay for now yeah uh and the other group i was gonna mention are the the tinputs there's a characteristic of them which I think actually might be broader than just, just this group because it's it's it I think skipping ahead it's it's maybe on the flag um it's the the upi or upe yep. I've seen that both spellings correct, which is yeah. the the conical headgear 
which like imagine a vase and flip it 180 uh, onto its head and then put it on someone's head. That's what it kind of looks like. Uh, hmm. So that's that's what boys would wear from the age of nine into early manhood. And it was big, you know, ceremonial to do. Um, there was a period of seclusion while the boys' hair grew um, and they would live in a separate house and they weren't allowed to visit their mother's house and so on. It was all taken super, super seriously. Um, kind of a taboo on seeing women. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and there was also dietary restrictions as well, which I didn't find the details of. Um, but yeah, anyway, then they, they take off the hat and a big ceremony and you've now become a man and, you know, all all to the good. But yeah, they're, they're very distinctive and they're on the flag. That's pretty interesting. And just another two things. One, uh, for Western contact, the dead were buried at sea. And this is still a practice for some of the leading members of the community. And uh, 80 days bingo. Uh <laughs> despite apparently the fact that uh, modern day uh, members of the tin puts group um deny the practice um this this essay seems to strongly suggest that cannibalism was a part of their earlier life uh the practice being generally performed ding, ding, ding. in response to an insult or a punishment taking the cannibalism box mm, uh, you know, albeit you know obviously some time ago um but also says it's kind of a part of uh some certain ceremonies um and it wasn't really a you know um a desire for human flesh it was a sort of a ceremonial thing uh and the victims were typically enemies taken in war um so yeah that the, the the greater the peace in in um bougainville the less the cannibalism uh so a nice yeah, a nice graph to think of it's good to know yeah uh, yeah that, that and that's you know there's some references to that in the early 20th century too but seems to have vanished since that's that's kind of my summary but it it, it is this kind of there's these two separate groups kind of spread throughout the 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 islands the, the broader diversity but also huge numbers of other smaller groups that that's it. it it's just really like it is a really nuts level of diversity for such a small place like it really really is but i suppose it was probably fairly left to its own devices for a huge amount of time it's true um, and even neighboring islands don't seem to have interacted too much with it and some something that again i don't want to dwell on because it's it's for one of the is like they have done like genetic studies on the different groups and they're surprisingly mm. not interrelated. Oh, wow. You know, despite being here for millennia, this kind of, um, what's it called? Like a uh, cross homogeneity. Marrying okay. just within yeah. a tribe, basically. Marrying sort of a, a distant enough relative, but, yeah. but still a relative kind of prevents problems that come with in-group marrying uh, while keeping the broader group intact it kind of it's kind of an impressive level of uh, social cohesion or, or, or group uh, cohesion i think that was a role the clans played as well that you're like you know who is an acceptable marriage partner and who isn't mm. Mm. Uh, th- th- there was mention of of kind of raids and that uh, you know as the cannibalism stuff suggests there was an element of kind of you know military conquest and that kind of thing oh yeah and and there was there was also some uh trade uh particularly in pottery um you know across islands and stuff but you know it's it's, it's not it's not really a big part of life like it's a sort of very mm. small supplementary thing i think great so next we have a a few uh scattered encounters with with europeans before we get to colonialism proper so in 1616, uh, Dutch explorers Willem Schouten and Jacob Lamarie were the first Europeans to sight what we now call uh, Bougainville, and for some reason didn't name it, or at least the name didn't stick. 
Their main purpose uh, was to search for our old friend Terra Australis Incognita. Ah. Uh, they'd been sent on this journey by the Dutch East India Company and were looking to also establish a western route to the Pacific Ocean uh, to evade uh, trade restrictions uh, in, in, in the waters around South America. Okay. And between them, they'd con- concocted a scheme to basically sa- sail entirely around the, the southern tip of South America, avoiding the Strait of Magellan. So like we would have discussed mm. that in our Tierra del Fuego episode, but you don't kind of have to go around the the, the, the sort of the southern tip of South America is all broken up into different bits and pieces of uh, islands and things. Yeah, there's a more protected channel you can go through. Um, but they, they sailed... Uh, entirely around the the length of the continent discovering a new route uh, which we now know as the drake passage uh, connecting the atlantic ocean with the pacific shooting uh, successfully passed through the Lemarie strait uh, between tierra del fuego and estados island or staten island which we talked about again in that tierra del fuego episode yeah and sailed into the pacific uh, and he gave the southernmost tip of America the name Cape Horn, which we still use today. Oh. Mm, cool. And the expedition later discovered a number of new islands, uh, later named named the Shooting Islands, off the northwestern coast of New Guinea, uh, before reaching its destination Batavia in Java, which is now Jakarta in Indonesia, in October 1616. And they also passed very close to Taku Atoll, and Nissan Island, both of which are kind of within the the broader spread of 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 the the territory of Bougainville, the, the political unit of Bougainville. Yeah, but I don't believe they landed at all. They just kind of noted the fact that okay. there were these islands here. And in Batavia, the Dutch governor, aware that any new route uh, around South America might end the privileged position of the Dutch East India Company, they refused to believe that they discovered a new a new route westward, and uh, confiscated their cargo as punishment uh, which is kind of annoying um and they were they were charged with infringing on the company's monopoly and were sent home to to, to holland so not not the best but um all oh, right the next we have an appearance from another old friend abel tasman uh his voyage began in august 1642 also dutch right yes and he was ordered by the council of the indies in batavia to undertake a voyage of exploration to little charted areas east of the cape of good hope west of Staten Island, off of Cape Horn, uh, and south of the Solomon Islands. And one of his objectives... Sorry, little charity areas between South America, Africa, yeah. and, and Indonesia. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a lot. I mean, they they still haven't found Australia. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. I, I didn't look for it. <laughs> yeah. So one of the objectives was to obtain the knowledge of all of the totally unknown provinces of beach, which I'd never heard of before, but... Uh, this was a purported mm-hmm. um, and yet non-existent landmass said to have been plentiful in gold, which had appeared on uh, European maps <laughs> since the early exist? 15th century uh, as a result of some navigational errors in some of Marco Polo's works. Right. Did he go to sea at all? I thought he mostly went across land. I don't know. Well, there you go. <laughs> but um, That was the error. Yeah. He never went <laughs> to sea. That was the error. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they were transposing sea and land. That was the issue. <laughs> the party called it Tasmania, which we talked about previously, and gave places names like Adventure Bay and Storm Bay, which oh, I, I, I remember making fun of in that episode. Uh, also called it Mauritius and New Zealand, oh. which he suspected for some reason might actually be connected by land to Staten Island uh, oh. on South America. So I I don't what? know. But it's, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
seemingly that that's the case, which is I looked it up almost 8,000 kilometers or 5,000 miles away. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Did he try sailing around? I don't so. think so. Yeah. Uh, on this voyage, Taku and Nissan were seen again uh, and they made contact with native people in canoes. And the Taku Island uh, natives were described as tawny in appearance. And the Nissans were described as entirely and quite naked. Their body very black. Some had white rings of, so it appeared, bone around their arms. Some were on the face striped with lime. Uh, and there's no further record of contact with any Europeans after this point for around 100 years. Right. Wow. Um, well, those are um, real colonial observations. Mm, like, yeah. it's probably as good a time as any to mention something that is a little weird that keeps getting referenced that like skin color is kind of important in this region mm-hmm. uh like people on the solomon islands tend to have much darker skin than people on papua new guinea mainland for want of a better word to the extent that there is local comment on that they they, they see each other as different in a kind of a race type way okay and of course europeans were very open to seeing people based on skin color oh boy so like new guinea in fact is named new guinea because it you know people in guinea have dark skin yeah and they found another place where people had dark skin so oh, yeah new guinea this is the second version despite being nowhere near it mm. so uh yeah it's it's um it's something that comes up again and again uh this kind of distinction between very dark skinned people on Bougainville and the Solomons and um, lighter skinned people in, in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, so just so you know. Okay. And then lots of white people in boats. Um, yeah. Trying to exploit them for <laughs> yeah. uh, for financial gain. Next was the British explorer uh, Carteret, uh, who reached and named the island group of that name. Uh, the island group that still bears his name in 1767. And it seems clear that Halia speakers from Buka had already replaced the Polynesians recorded in oral traditions as the earlier inhabitants. And Carteret mm. was the first European to see Buka Island and also passed Nissan again. Then we have Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. Mm. Uh, he led the first French circumnavigation of the globe and uh, is also the namesake for the Bougainvillea flower, which I kept coming across when I was trying to Google yes, for this episode. Yes, plagues any searching for it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> if you're looking for Bougainvillea, it says, did you mean Bougainvillea? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> uh, and we've gone back to Bougainville as well. Bougainville, sorry. <laughs> we got to have a, a Bougainville klaxon or something. Or well, a, well, he, he, he's Bougainville. He is Louis-Antoine Comte yeah. de Bougainville. That, that's his name. Bougainville. That's true. He's Bougainville. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. In 1768, as part of his circumnavigation of the globe, he sailed through what we now know as the Solomon Islands, but because of the uh, reported hostility of the people there, he avoided landing. Uh, and he named Bougainville uh, or Bougainville Island for himself. And the expedition was attacked by people from New Ireland. Uh-oh. Which is just to the north. He hightailed it out of there. And he also named Buka Island after the word, which apparently was repeatedly called out from the canoes that came after him uh, in, his, oh in his ship. I, I wonder what calumny that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. So Buka Buka, <laughs> they were calling after him apparently. So uh, I don't know if that's welcome, welcome or right. F off. I'm I, not I sure. suspect it isn't yeah. welcome. Kill, kill. <laughs> kill, yeah. kill. Exactly. So that's our early European encounters. Shall we take a quick break here and then we'll um, come back with um, real colonial. German interests. Mm. Yeah. 
So, Joe, you're going to tell us about uh, the arrival of the Germans, is that correct? Yeah, the island of New Guinea is off to the west. Um, it is not currently colonized. The Dutch are kind of, I think the Dutch maybe claimed the, the west side of it, which comes to Papa. Um, Australia is a collection of states, of colonies. It's not in Australia yet. There isn't yet an Australian country. There's just New South Wales and Queensland and a few other colonies um, that are British possessions. And uh, Samoa is disputed between the Americans and the Germans and the British. Yeah, so the, and there's a lot of exploration going on in this region now. People trying to claim what's left uh, as colonies because colonies are cool now. So that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the landscape we're dealing with in the late 1800s. Queensland and its neighbours were apparently very nervous about the possibility of, of a, an extra-European power claiming um, New Guinea. So like there was Dutch in the region, there was French, you know, in New Caledonia, and there was the British obviously had Australia and New Zealand, <laughs> but they didn't really want someone else to be in their backyard. Mm. So against the British's wishes, they actually claimed the Torres Straits Islands, and they also raised a flag at Port Moresby, which is the current capital of Papua New Guinea in 1883, but this this claim was repudiated. But they're definitely putting out feelers. There was a lot of German trade in the region, and they were concerned about the activities of a woman called Emma Coe, or Emma Forsyth, or Emma Farrell, or more excitingly, Queen Emma, okay, uh, who was a daughter of a, an American trader and a Samoan princess who had married several times to various business partners and was amassing huge plantation holdings across New Britain and the Bismarck Archipelago, which is up to the northwest of where we're talking about. So she was kind of setting up this empire, this trading empire, that made the Germans nervous. So they were keen to like put some flags and some things uh, so they could mine, know, get mine. taxes and stuff. Uh, I must credit Peter Sachs chapters in Bougainville before the conflict and, and Peter Laracy's uh, chapters. There's some excellent essays in there, very good analysis, which I, I will maybe reference specifically again, but it's definitely informed a lot of what I'm talking about. This might be the single greatest source we've had for any episode. It was so oh, good. Yes. It was literally like, a, here's every bit of history in, yeah, yeah 30 page chunks. In-depth interviews with people, uh, way too much. So... You know, it, was like a, it seems to be a, like a conference of Bougainville experts decided, oh, what if we put all of our papers together into a book? You know, oh, yeah. turns out it's useful. So in 1884, Germany was in an expansionist mood. Now, Otto von Bismarck wasn't hugely into colonies. He didn't want the, the responsibility of having to like run other places. But when the um, Neu Guinea Company, the, the New Guinea Company, convinced him that a company could run protectorates on behalf of the empire uh, and absorb all the kind of administrative costs but bring back profits he was convinced by uh, german interests that that would be good so he uh, allowed them to take over the northeast of new guinea and they started annexing various islands around the region such as nauru and in 1885 declared a german uh, schutzgebiet over Bougainville, Buca, and some of the other Solomon Islands uh, further south, the, the sh um, Shortland Islands and a few others. In 1886, uh, the British and Germans actually agreed to partition the Solomon Islands between them. 
they drew a line. And sort of said everything northwest, that's German. And everything southeast, that's British. And they didn't really ask anyone on the okay. islands what they thought. Why, why would they do that, Joe? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the Neue Guinea Company, its charter was extended to include the North North Solomons, which is what these couple of islands around Bougainville become known as. Mm. And they claimed a monopoly on land transfers, a heavily controlled labour. So recruiting of indigenous labour was a widespread practice. We talked about blackbirding before in, I think, Vanuatu and New Caledonia. Yeah, I was going to ask about the word recruiting that you're using, Joe. So, yes, recruiting had various different meanings over different times. Yeah. It was sometimes a wholesale kidnapping of people and just saying, you're working for me now. Um and it did evolve into something more akin to indentured servitude where you'd sign up for a five-year contract and be returned home with a big pile of cash, which was obviously better than, you know, essentially slavery, which is where it started. But yeah, there's, there's huge um, moral questions around all of these practices. The commander who was running the place prohibited, uh, for the time being, the acquisition of land from the natives oh. and the supply of arms, ammunition and liquor to them. So the company did try to control just people turning up and saying, this is mine now, have some seashells. You know, like they tried to make sure all the land buying went through them. And they did seem to make sure there was fair payment of some sort. No one gets to play unless daddy gets a taste. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that that might be more of the motivation rather than trying to protect the the lands of the natives. Yeah, and again, they did bring in rules about how labour was uh, contracted, which were better than the free-for-all that preceded it. But again, they they wanted to get their cut. Mm. Uh, So if there was a fixed wage, that was good for them. If there was whatever, you know, if people had to be rented from a certain location, that was good for them. Rented. In principle, they had sweeping powers over the natives and the non-natives. They were allowed to establish different laws for each, but they didn't really want to. So they generally allowed customary law to continue for civil matters among the native population of Bougainville and, and uh, New Guinea, uh, rather than create a new legal framework. And really, the early decades of German rule were characterised by quite a hands-off approach, with very fleeting visits by administrators who just kind of check in and maybe exact revenge for a murder or something. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry to hear, I just need to check in and exact revenge for a murder. It doesn't really yep. fit, fit the tone of the kind of blithe, mm. casual checking in. Sorry. <laughs> the acting administrator, Kretke, took two years to actually visit the North Solomons after acquiring them and brought an imperial judge called Schmiele, who would later become the governor, uh, some missionaries who didn't stay, and Richard Parkinson, who was the brother-in-law of Queen Emma. So they'd been recruiting again using air quotes, labour in the area for a long time, so he he had a lot of local knowledge. Apparently Richard Parkinson was German, with a name like that. Mm. I didn't think he would be, but uh, he wrote a vast book that I didn't read uh, about his Treitzigjahre in the Sud Pacific, um, which I'm sure is very even-handed. So they were looking for an administrative centre, but they kind of didn't bother setting one up. In 1892, Schmiele returned, now as governor, he thought the land was good and that, that the people made excellent labours, so mostly they'd just use this place for labour and not try to have any plantations. So they just take the people, bring them to uh, modern-day New Guinea or the Bismarck Archipelago and bring them back and just have this as a labour reserve, which is a horrifying idea. A reserve, a yeah. Country. God. Um, in 1896, Imperial Judge Hal was sent on one of these... Um, law and order missions he had 38 policemen who who were local 
uh, so they were called native policemen. They seemed to be essentially soldiers who were recruited. Mm. And the situation was that a Chinese trader who was employed by Queen Emma's firm had been killed and four of his labourers from New Ireland had been kidnapped along the Buca Strait. And so the judge came with um, our friend Parkinson's ship to confront them with his, with his soldiers. There was a standoff. The warriors were scattered by the policemen charging them. And then everything seemed to just go fine. The captives were freed and Parkinson gave them gifts from his ship and everything was fine. Okay. So I, I, I feel like we don't really know a lot about the dynamics of that interaction, but Judge Hiles stated that dating from this instance, we enjoy good relations with the natives around the Buca Strait and these districts later became the best recruiting areas for soldiers. So Buca kind of was happy to deal with um, the Germans much quicker than the rest of the region. Um, but they did have some interesting conflicts where like, they visited the home villages of some of the, their the native policemen and they would be attacked by, like the people from other ethnic groups would be attacked. So there was kind of on the island all these these difficulties between mm. groups that once they went and worked elsewhere didn't exist. In 1900, England and, sorry, Britain and Germany agreed to reconfigure the border and a few of the islands were given to Britain in return for Britain giving up of any claims on Samoa. And so we're left with the border where it basically is today between Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands of just Bougainville and Buca being part of a, being separate to the rest of the Solomon Islands. So in the early 20th century, um, Queen Emma's firm had a 5,000 acre copper plantation empire across Buca and Nissan. So copper is like dried coconut. Uh, that's used for like it's oil. Oh, I thought you said copper. Sorry, no copper. 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 Okay. Mm. So it's a huge trade crop in in this region. Um, it's kind of the most lucrative cash crop, and she was employing fourteen hundred native laborers uh, in the region, which is a pretty good chunk of the population, to be honest. Mm, the following acting governor Schnee <laughs> Snow. He pioneered a, a widespread policy of punitive expeditions in response oh, no. to attacks of white ships or settlements. So uh, it would just he just send native policemen ashore to just kill people randomly and like destroy villages, take valuables as a form of collective punishment. Do you think this is a, a boy named Sue kind of situation where a guy with a really stupid name turns into a monster just to show everybody he's real maybe, serious? Maybe. And I, I think it's even more perverse. Like the, the policemen were from Bougainville, yeah. usually. So I think there's something really quite perverse about that, where maybe they were settling their own scores, but I don't know. But uh, Schnee was convinced that although the measures taken had run counter to European ideas of a just punishment, they had been absolutely necessary, and they had been successful. Indeed, no further murderous attacks on whites have occurred in Bougainville during these years following the punishment of the Timputs people. Oh, the uh, Timputs. I don't know why I gave him a British accent, but... <laughs> <you know. laughs> just um, habit, I guess. Uh... Habit. I do not know why. Um, yeah. Oh, that was he, but the, the fact is there hadn't been a lot of attacks to begin with. So it misrepresents the situation. It's like, we solved the problem that was barely there by doing something vastly over. I was reading is that uh, the murders have stopped since the murders that we did. Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, well. Since we killed everyone, there's been no more murders. So uh, a big moment in Bougainville history is the arrival of the Catholic Marist missionaries. Mm. Uh, they were French and German missionaries. They were invited in in about 1901, and they were very successful with like agricultural, spiritual, and educational programs around Kieta on the east of the okay. island. 
Um, Catholicism will become the largest religion. About 70% of people are Catholic and almost everyone is Christian. Wow. And it would be very prominent among some secessionist leaders. So like they played a big role in sort of mediating some of the harsher bits of colonialism between the authorities and the people and bringing the people into contact with Western civilization in a different way. So are generally considered quite an important part of society, as is sometimes the case. And as I say, played a role in secessionist political thought. So after about 20 years of colonial rule, allegedly, a government station was finally set up at Kieta, near the mission, with very small team of people who were running the place. They picked this location because it was the most unruly bit, so the, the Buka had pretty much complied with desire for labour and, and soldiers, where around Buin and Kieta it was more unruly or independent-minded, mm-hmm. um, which will continue to the modern day, I suppose. Governor Hal was a bit more involved in day-to-day affairs. He would actually settle disputes between native groups, sometimes even at their request, and try to find appropriate plantation sites. And as I say, regulation of native labour recruitment did become more more uh, more regulated, and there were punishments for kidnappings and use of force, but we really will never know how bad this regime was. Uh, there were many complaints in newspapers and in correspondence from missionaries about abductions or about children being inducted into labour with promises of money rather than going to school, you know. Uh, but but also, who knows? We just don't have enough re- records to make a, a final conclusion on it. By 1913, a large part of the island had been, again, quote-unquote pacified, and the... The remote interior was still a bit uh, resistant to to German expansion. You don't say. But mm. the uh, by, by by 1913, about 220 kilometers of roads have been built. Guess how they've been built, guys? Uh, indentured labor. Skulls of their enemies. Yeah, unpaid, unpaid kind yeah. of unpaid labor as a kind of form of tax. Okay. Um, oh. Okay. Non voluntary tax. In some places, a head tax was starting to replace unpaid labor. So actual monetary tax for some of the more settled groups uh, in Buka and along the east and north coast of Bougainville. They reckon there's about 4,000 indigenous families paying tax around this time. About 74 European non-natives and 20 Chinese and Malay traders working for the big uh, trading firms. And British and Australian capital started to get interested in buying up some of the plantations. German colonial rule, however ended quite suddenly and quickly in uh, September 1914 when the acting governor of German New Guinea uh, capitulated to the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force uh, during World War One. So in short, German colonial rule lasted about 30 years and then was over. Everything in Bougainville happens a bit slower than in the rest of the world though and it took 90 days until the Australians actually got there and lowered the German flag. The... The transfer of power was apparently swift and undramatic, and the official deportees were well, two doctors uh, and their, their families, and an assistant district officer, and a police master, and an assistant medical officer, you know, like a handful of people. Uh, Mainly physicians, were, were it sounds deported. like. <laughs> Mainly physicians, yeah. You know, they started ramping up plantation trade, and there was this whole thing of like ex-military from the, the Australian um, army being given good terms to buy plantations right. after the war. 
which is an interesting dynamic. It's a sort of Australian colonialism is what we start to see. That is interesting. And there was some initial tensions with the Catholics over like unreasonable land rent demands. But by 1920, the superior of the Marists, uh, Modest Boch, highly praised Captain Cardew for all the work, building roads, building sanitation, bringing about equal justice and pacifying conflicts in the interior, saying they'd done more, more to develop the colony than the whole German occupation. Although, in whose interest? Well, I don't mm. really know. The League of Nations gave Australia a mandate to, to minister the protectorate of the territory of New Guinea, which included Bougainville yep. hmm. and Buka. This was replaced with civilian government in 1921. And then the government expropriated property of German people after the Treaty of Versailles. So that was how they were, had land to give to their ex-soldiers. Yoink. And in 1921, a population of 46,000 people, so, so growing there was some talk of cargo cults being quashed by the police in Buka mm. in the 20s. I couldn't find much more on that, but that was a thing in the region, as we talked about at length in, in Vanuatu. And the scarcity of the police led to an interesting setup where the administration kind of appointed, government-appointed chiefs uh, to, to be go-betweens, so not traditional chiefs elected in their traditional ways. These guys were called kukarais, which is tuck piss in for rooster. Okay. Which I think it's kind of fun. Okay. And that feels a little bit derisive. Yeah. I feel. I'm picturing them as like hall monitors with a little sash. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a legitimate um, interpretation. Yeah. Two major incidents I think are worth mentioning. Um, we, we were talking about cannibalism earlier. Yes. There was a ferocious cannibal chieftain called Bowu. In, the, in living in the mountains um, who had been abducting women and killing laborers from all the different tribes in the island uh, and in 1915 15 native policemen were dispatched by their um, Irish commander whose name I couldn't find all right. on a punitive expedition where they basically burned down the village and beheaded Bowu and stuck his head on a stick Jeez. so Ooh. that kind of uh, put an end to cannibalism so we just send a message. Yep. Uh, the anthropologist uh, Turnwald, who lived among some of the headhunting people on Bougainville, he kind of had observed that like headhunting and skull collecting of the enemy of enemies was a thing, uh-huh. but killings were always kind of politically sanctioned. So, like you didn't just murder someone or like hunt people. It was like this guy has wronged us, as you said earlier, Mark. Uh, so there needs to be a price paid, and. Over time, this was slowly phased out or subsumed into myths or into non-lethal forms, like pig skulls started to play the role of human skulls in some ceremonies, that kind of thing. Another important conflict was at the Moru Bagwai feud, which um, was brought to an end when a man called Babala and several other chiefs or high-ranking men were executed in the village of Moro, um, and it was the village was destroyed by Captain Karju of the Australian government. And this is in reprisal for killing a, a Kukurai, one of these government go-betweens, all monitors, oh, okay. uh, some police officers and a, a Catholic catechist who had been in the village. So this is a long-running feud going back decades where people have been tit-for-tat killings and the Australians just... Wiped out the tat. Killed all the chiefs, wiped out the town. Uh, and that really represented a complete change, like the old ways are done now. Mm. And the region around Buin was essentially, again, quote-unquote, pacified from then on. But Babala is an ancestor of John Momus, who's a character, uh, who's a political figure later yeah, we'll in, in the... Um, that we'll talk about in later sections. And his version of the story is quite different. Uh, he sees 
Babala as being a kind of a freedom fighter against German uh, outside influence rather than a guy who murdered a couple of government agents. Are those the same thing? Could, could well be the same uh, thing, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that. Yeah, it's it's interesting the different perspective, though, of two different essays uh, about the, the incident. Okay, uh, we're nearly we're nearly coming to the next big change, the Second War. Um, some Protestants turn up. I don't know how interested you are in that. <laughs> Very. Methodists and Seventh-day Adventists. Can I interest you in uh, some Protestants? <laughs> did no, set up some missions. And this did lead to conflicts between villages, like the villages of Osu and Hukuku uh, went to like an axe war with each other over uh, building the wrong church in the wrong land. Some churches were destroyed. Things got a bit heated um, occasionally, but I think uh, intermission rivalries were largely calmed down pretty quickly. And village life was completely restructured by the building of more modern villages and the bulldozing of old smaller villages um all in the view of of progress um yeah so the the only little slightly foreshadowing thing that remains to be said is that there was a, a gold mine some sporadic gold mining around a place called panguna in the, the 1930s oh, no. um which continued for a decade or so but something big happened in the 1940s and Apart from copious mission correspondence, few records survive of Bougainville between the two wars, and they're the white man's records only. In them, the locals are largely ignored, because in 1942, most of the records that could have been kept were hastily abandoned in an event I expect Mark's going to be able to tell us about. In the obvious 1940s, early part of that decade event. The specific The thing that happened everywhere. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then we'll come back with uh, mysterious events happening in 1942. As always, this show wouldn't be possible without our supporters on Patreon, so we'd like to take a minute to thank a few of them by name. If you'd like to join their ranks, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, and there's various levels you can choose to support the show as you see fit. Some of our latest supporters are Dana Fox, Daniela Sponsler, Stephen M, and ACC. I'd like to thank them very much for signing up. Along with some of our long-standing supporters, Emily Cranfill, Simon Green, Aaron Barkley, Darren Clark, Nathan Hickson, Colin Macharius, and Mark Wood. Along with so many others, you guys help make the podcast possible, and we'd like to sincerely thank you. And now, back to the episode, where I, I think World War II is what's coming up next. All right, so, um, yes, World War II. Um, just, yeah, it's kind of the outside of this. It, it it starts off a bit weird. It's a weird version of World War II. Uh, the Japanese kind of turn up, but in very small numbers. In 1942, they invade. Um, but the Australians are kind of running the place, uh, and most of them run away very fast, uh, seemingly. Mm. Um but leaving behind all their important records. important records, but also a couple of Australians who um, it was interesting. You mentioned that there, a lot of the kind of locals or so I guess, you know, Australian expats who then became locals were former kind of military people, because that actually makes a lot of mm. sense because they had a big role in terms of kind of watching the coastline and watching the Japanese troop movements. So we'll kind of get into that a little bit as we go, but it kind of makes sense that they were kind of former military because the, the, the essay I read on this, because again, a lot of my reading came from that, that huge book of essays by Bougainville, uh, just was kind of naming these guys by name. Mm. 
Well, there was only a handful the, of Yeah, it was only there, like 20 or so uh, hanging around the coast and just watching and, and radioing in. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that, that was just kind of a, an interesting point of, of their background. So, uh, as I say, the Japanese invade in early 1942. Uh, very few Australian troops, fewer than 20, uh, are there at that time. And they, they withdraw inland and really just kind of are, are trying to watch what the Japanese are doing because they have no chance of forcing them off the island. Uh, until mid-1942, rarely more than 50 Japanese on the island. It's really just kind of uh, a wait and see uh, and kind of, uh, I guess, slightly guerrilla approach to what's what's happening. And not even guerrilla warfare, just kind of guerrilla, try to stay alive. Guerrilla looking. That's bananas. Like 20 guys left to hold, hold an island and 50 guys trying to invade. Like that's yep. that's so small in World War II terms. But it's such a small island yeah, yeah. with no military infrastructure and no, you know. Yeah. It is an afterthought. The uh, Eastern Theatre of War was opening up with the kind of battles in Guadalcanal that the Americans were fighting. So this mm. became a kind of a, a really important place to spot Japanese ships, Japanese aircraft movements and stuff. So it was, they were actually doing a lot more good just by staying alive and looking off the coast than they were by kind of trying to fight anybody. The Japanese occupation really kind of builds up in 1943. There's uh, several thousand, maximum 65,000 troops uh, on Bougainville, wow. um, but not really any battles fought until the very end of 1943 but lot, lots of rumors and lots of kind of oh look at this aircraft look at this ship but that must be nearly as many japanese soldiers as inhabitants mm. yeah i think it, it may have only just been a kind of a temporary staging post i saw that number but it's, mm. it's not it's not really a huge role for bougainville in like the japanese war effort I, as far as i can tell at least do you know did the, did the 20 australians still hang around when there was sixty-five thousand japanese troops here no i think the australian soldiers tried to evacuate as fast as possible along right. with uh you know 200 or so foreigners that were there uh leaving only really only a handful of kind of civilians probably former military civilians who were just kind of uh still trying to kind of keep an eye on what was happening off the coast in disguise mm. I, I remember seeing uh, i forget who it was i think again it might have been john momus i think his, his mother was part chinese so they were very invested in, in getting out too because japan had yeah had its own racist ideologies uh during world war Two. there was about 50 to 80 chinese i think they were the kind of you know the second biggest group after the marist group yeah and they had sort of transitioned to being shopkeepers and stuff yeah. after the era of indentured servitude and i think this fairly got rid of a lot of the chinese population so um the the locals uh, the people of, of bougainville were, were pretty happy that the japanese had turned up they didn't ha- really have a lot of love for the australians uh, and they were like okay i guess the japanese are the new thing now and just we're just trying to get along with that as, as best they could um there was a bit of a mention about cargo cults as well as saying maybe they thought this was kind of the fulfillment of a cargo cult uh prophecy but uh, for the most part it was really just kind of pragmatism but uh things did not go well Labourers conscripted by the Japanese were less likely to be paid, and the Japanese military were, uh, you know, the Japanese military, bit, yeah. bit on the mean side. Uh, mm. It was an elderly chief at Lemenkoa in the north of Buka who refused to come in to collect his uh, Japanese armband, and a soldier cut his throat in public, uh, and floggings for leaders were generally pretty common, I think. Mm. So uh, in August 1942, uh, North Bougainvillian people were found to have kept the contents of a parachute dropped to supply the Australians. The uh, police decided who was responsible, and while an Australian carried out the formal inquiry, the police kind of decided on the punishments. There was a house burnt, and people fined, and people were given strokes with a cane. I, I'm mentioning this because just kind of to highlight that you know the Australians were still kind of trying to administer in 1942, and uh, you know they 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 weren't exactly 
ingratiating themselves to the locals either. And there was this weird kind of thing that you, you touched on earlier, I think it was Joe, talking about the police, that the police were locals, but they were basically just doing the bidding of the Australians and um, mm. were, you know, themselves kind of persona non grata after a while. And actually they, they evacuated some of the police because I think it was kind of felt... Ooh, they're not going to last long if we leave them here, frankly, like uh, without the Australians to yeah. back them up. I, I did see some stuff of, about um, Australia trying to get silver currency to some pl- some plantation owners though, to try and what? pay wages in the early parts of the war um, because they wanted to keep their copper plantations going. Right. I think they successfully did for some... I don't think the Japanese shut all that down immediately. So there was still some attempt to, as you say, administer uh, this place a little bit. Right. But not affected. There was also an account, I didn't give it a lot of details, but there was a, a punishment bombing raid on a village uh, but it was the police who were lighting the marker fires and then like running like madmen when the planes actually came. So yeah, it's it's very, very weird. But I mean, going forward, I mean, the, both the Japanese and Australians were kind of I guess using their, their wealth and influence to kind of force the people of Bougainville to take sides. There, there was clashes between kind of the Japanese and Australians, but mainly actually between Bougainvillians who were fighting with them. Um, there was one big fight apparently in uh, Aita in n- mid-1943. The air was filled, this is a quote, the air was filled with automatic rifle fire, the bursting of grenades, and finally the raking rattle of heavier machine guns. So they, they were bringing modern military equipment to these fights. And the Bougainvillians were calling each other out by name uh, across the lines of battle. They all knew each other, uh, apparently. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the Japanese and the Australians were just, you know, fighting a bit of World War II. And yeah, there was just another kind of really weird detail that uh, some people in, in Buin, a town we've mentioned before, some people were working for the Japanese on the new airstrip during the day and carrying for the Australians at night. So yeah, uh, Bougainvillians were, were kind of forced to play both sides or you know pick a side for a while, but it was a real, real mess. As I said, there was evacuations. There was a submarine in July 1943, which evacuated a lot of the police. And there was there were several other uh, submarines as well, just kind of evacuating all the civilians off. The Guadalcanal landings by America happened in 1942 in, in August. And as a result, as I said, kind of Bougainville is, is really important as a sort of a plane spotting, uh, ship spotting um, fixture in, in the sea. Japanese bombers flying from their base at Rabaul, which is kind of a... A really key. That's in New New Britain, isn't it? That's New the... New Britain, I think. Yeah, and like it, a large mm. part of the big kind of island hopping campaign was to take out this mm. this base. So it, it's kind of it's not really mentioned that much, but like a lot of the fighting was was around this this base. I think that might have been the Australian capital of the, oh, the okay. territory initially. That might make sense. Yeah, but yeah, the, the the fact that they could actually kind of see these planes coming in, it would give over two hours of warning to the forces in Guadalcanal. That was enough time for ships to get to sea to disperse um, and for, you know, troops to get off crowded beaches, to head to take cover and for uh, fighter aircraft to refuel, rearm and climb into the air so that their first attack was from above the Japanese. So it was really, really important uh, that kind of to get this forewarning from Bougainville. But uh, in kind of early 1943, the Americans kind of secured Guadalcanal, so it became less important. So the, the Bougainvillians had seen a major Japanese buildup in, in November 1943. But basically in late 1943, there was a heavy uh, aerial Allied bombing uh, preparing a landing space for troops, American troops at Torakina, uh, okay. which is going to kind of change bougainville's role in the war uh american forces landed uh along with uh, the help of kind of uh, new zealand and fijian troops 
and they started building a base, building airfields and supply depots and so on. And it was this huge, huge thing. It was, um, they, they, they brought in 23,000 tons of goods. Uh, there was 34,000 men and that would, that would double over the course of the war. Uh, the base extended a ma- maximum inland of five miles. Wow. They had uh, three airstrips there, uh, one long bomber field, uh, a huge giant tank for fuel and, and 20 smaller tanks, five miles of overland pipe uh, to kind of move all the air fuel around. <laughs> I, I, I didn't look up who all these people were, but Bob Hope was there. You know, the kind of the old idea of, of uh, Bob Hope with his golf club doing kind of USO tours. He he, he wow. came to Bougainville as did... Nice. As, as a soldier or, or like to entertain? No, no, no. Doing, doing like his bit for the troops. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. As did Jack Benny, Randolph Scott and Carol Landis, none of whom I've ever heard of, but they were the stars of the day, I guess. Um, but yeah, there was one nice quote. Uh, it was uh, Admiral Halsey said there had neither been bull nor dozing at Tarakina. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, they turned it into a super base, basically, uh, just on, on, on the beach. Wow. I, I think some of the arms from that base end up in the hands oh, really? of um, rebels later, which is kind of, and like a lot later. This is out outdated kit, but there's a lot of weaponry ends up but left behind bet, yeah. the war from both sides. The, the, the Japanese are still there, though. That's the, that's the weird thing. I mentioned there was this kind of other stalemate. So you've got this huge base that's been created with, you know, 30 to 60,000 people in it. But they didn't actually clear the island first? No. No. Oh. The Japanese are wow. still, still kind of there. They're not there in the same numbers. But uh, what we have is the Japanese uh, 17th Army were at this point now kind of effectively cut off from the main Japanese forces. Couldn't get supplies in, nowhere to cover, and they didn't have any resupplies. So they were not really able to make an effective attack. By kind of March, uh, 15,000 Japanese had slogged and scrambled their way to launch a counterattack on the Tarakina perimeter. Um, this did not go well. <laughs> Admiral Halsey said the Japanese attacks were savage, suicidal, and somewhat stupid. Uh, in 17 days of fighting, they lost 5,000 dead to the Americans, 263. Um, and whole swathes of rainforest uh, were blasted clean by uh, American artillery. Oh. And my, my understanding is that that blast of artillery is what gave the name to my favorite place name, which is Hell's a Poppin' Ridge. Um, which is mentioned a few times. Wow. I think the the ridge was kind of overlooking the 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 base, so they were like, "Yeah, everything there has got to go." So they just blew up the ridge, uh, and it became known as Hell's a Poppin. That was a movie, wasn't it? Like kind of a swing. There was a movie called Hell's a Poppin. Yeah, heavy movie uh, from nineteen forty one. So I guess it would have been like something we're all that familiar with. Right. Yeah, yeah, lots of Lindy Hop. Not on not on that ridge, Joe. So the Americans are are doing pretty well in the war, as it turns out. In the middle of 1944, there was a handover of Torakina to the Australians. And the Australians are very like, ooh, we've not really done a lot in this war. Uh, we should really go on the offensive here and, and stick it to the Japanese. Uh, and this is kind of a political decision because they felt that, well, they felt in one sense they should because everyone else is doing a lot of warring. Uh, but also they kind of felt it, it might look a bit bad if at the end of the war, kind of like with World War One, there was pressure kind of, ooh, it's almost finished. We better do some war or we won't yeah. get any good stuff afterwards. So there was that yep. too. Anyway, uh, so the, the, the Australians arrived pretty, pretty ready to go. And their, their commander, Lieutenant General Savage, 
uh, was very keen on our surprise attack. I suppose he would be. He, in, indeed. Um, nominative determinism there. Uh, they launched a three-pronged attack on the kind of three main sections of Japanese troops, all of which were ultimately successful, but they took a lot of heavy casualties. Um, and, you know, there was the kinds of events which created Victoria Crosses, where a guy, you know, some guy has his limbs hanging off him and he's got three of his comrades on his shoulder and this kind of thing. Like, and you don't kind of get into those situations unless it is a very kind of killy, bloody war. Hmm. Uh, you don't, you don't, yeah. you don't get VC, uh, Victoria, um, Victoria's crosses for admin, you know, they're, yeah. it's, it's serious stuff these guys are seeing here. A lot of them are post Thomas as well. But, um, they, they did this bit of war and then for the rest of the war, they were just like, oh, Actually, let's just kind of contain the Japanese like we've been successfully doing for the rest of the war. So let's just let's just ride this whole war thing out became kind of the, the approach. But uh, the Australians uh, had uh, 500 people dead and about 1500 wounded in this campaign. So uh, they, they felt the, this loss pretty keenly. Again, particularly is like it's the end of the war and there's people dying. What are you doing kind of thing? Um, one really unpleasant thing to mention. Uh, so on Bougainville, there were black units in the U.S. Army which were used in combat, which was kind of unusual for the time. Usually they were in kind of support units. Um, but here it was kind of different. But uh, after an early engagement uh, in which it performed well, one company, which included some black soldiers, there there was a few people killed due to friendly fire and there was you know, wild panic. Some people threw their weapons away. And yeah, it was a big kind of not very good scene for the U.S. Army. Despite the fact that there were lots of white units who did exactly the same thing, this kind of was seen as a, well, we tried it and it failed, and therefore we won't do it again kind of uh, approach to uh, integration of the army. So it was a bit of a bit of a downer, I'm afraid, on right. that. Uh, surprisingly, in the middle of a war, things, <laughs> things are di- different levels of bad. So uh, just the war itself was really destructive on Bougainville. There were just so many kind of just bad things happening. Um, like the, the last time I remember encountering a list like this was kind of during the, it was called a war in Tasmania, but eventually, yeah, effectively the eradication of the indigenous peoples of, oh, yeah. The, the genocide. yeah, it's just yeah. like, it's just an, an awful big list of very bad things. Uh, I've, I've just kind of picked out kind of one or two here, just kind of give an idea. <sighs> so there, there was villagers in the central uh, Luluai Valley. Uh, they, they killed 42 Japanese dead after they opened up on them with a, a captured light machine gun grenades. Uh, the Japanese at Oria oh. called 10 villagers in to pay them in a separate event. Uh, instead, they opened fire on them and just three wounded escaped from that. The Australian New Guinea Administration Unit, Angao is the, is the um, acronym that spells, uh, officers of that unit uh, heard from an informer that a guy called Tay took food to three Japanese who were living alone. When Tay did not return, the people searched for him and saw the Japanese cooking parts of him and cutting flesh and storing it. Ah. Uh, they told the Japanese leader it's uh, Sinanai, and he came back with them and found the men, three men with uncooked flesh. He told the people to assemble at Sinanai, where the three Japanese were shot in front of them. So, what yeah. The, what? Yeah, what? Bit, of, bit of extra cannibalism there, uh, but a very different kind. That's really grim. That's... That's kind of the flavor of this. Just a lot of lot of just bad stuff is happening. And it's because, like, the, the, the Japanese soldiers weren't doing that because, like, they were well-fed and they were good supply lines. Like, it's, it's mm. just everything's breaking down. Like, all society's breaking down because it's, it's in a, a... It's at not quite the end of the war, so everything's in a kind of a weird stalemate. 
anyway, uh, un- until uh, the, the Japanese are surrendering left and right as well. There was a, a story of um, a guy called Kawaguchi Yoshiharu. Um, previously, two of his friends had tried to surrender. They'd both gone forward waving kind of documents that... Uh, they would be well treated if they came forward and gave themselves up. The Australians then shot them. Oof. One died. The other, who was wounded, crawled back, and a Japanese officer found him with a pamphlet and then shot him for attempting to desert. Oof. So uh, Kawaguchi got in a canoe and then kind of rowed behind enemy lines. Very, very sorry. I guess behind enemy lines, but very, very far behind enemy lines. Kind of like quietly went like, "Hello, I'm just quietly surrendering. Please don't shoot me." And and he lived. I've mentioned like at this point that the war is very unpopular in in Australia so they're basically saying let's just kind of do as little warring as we can because it's all gotten a bit bloody and why the heck are we even doing it the war is basically over uh it was referred to as a politician's war in some circles mm. um and just overall uh cost it's 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 world war 2 we're talking so you know it's it's bad. Uh, there was uh, 23,571 Japanese surrendered on Bougainville and uh, over 40,000 Japanese uh, and, and volunteer conscripted auxiliaries uh, died there. Uh, by contrast, there was less than 2,000 Allied servicemen uh, who wow. died. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the kind of like it's 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 huge, it's a uh, huge disparity in the death. Yeah, ten times. But the like that's... but the really scary stuff is 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 kind of of the Bougainvilleans because uh, they were they were also fighting each other. It was effectively kind of a a proxy civil war or like a proxy war between two groups of Bougainvilleans because they were kind of forced by the Australians, the Japanese. So and it also, as I said, kind of led to society breaking down a bit in in some ways. But there's, there was never anyone counting how many people were there before and after really um but there was a, a, mm. a comprehensive post-war census in 1950 suggesting a local death rate uh due to war of about 21 percent um oh my god so it's a lot of, a lot of people died but like it there's not a lot of written history from there because no one cared about the locals so that's yeah it, it's that's kind of been a pattern since since colonialism began here is just random death and no real accounting rhyme or reason to it yeah Yeah. and unfortunately it's a theme that come up in that book quite a lot like the uh, the generally western academics presumably australian Mm -hmm. new zealand heavily represented kind of saying we really hope the next book like this has a lot more bougainvillian voices in it because there's oral history and there's, there's records that are being lost and if they're lost, we'll mm-hmm. never know what actually happened. We'll just know how many Americans and Japanese turned up, died, left. There, there was a, on the point about um, this is, I mean, totally separate. It's my, it's my other section was, was about kind of the, the geology and so on. It's one of the volcanoes they mentioned that, uh, well, you know, it's been extinct for a thousand years. But oral history says it actually erupted 300 years ago. So actually, we have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, you're, you're right. Like, I mean, the only, the only really useful kind of colorful information that can actually provide context is, is actually that and it's it's hugely untapped yeah. and i guess the fact that there's so, so many languages probably doesn't yeah. help either i did read an article once about how oral history about volcanoes is almost always pretty good you don't forget People a volcano yeah. volcanoes. let's take another quick break and we'll be back just after this let me take you back in dreams to the shores of tropical sunshine let me take you across the shores my black tropical island where you will get lost in illusions of your dreams 
World War II, um, there's a lot happening in this section, but uh, for the most part, I'm going to be focusing on um, just a, a few key bits and pieces of info, um, particularly the mine that I mentioned at the top of the episode, which is, is, is going to become uh, really crucial and integral to Bougainville's history when it's established in a couple decades. But in terms of the years immediately after the war, uh, Australia was once again uh, given charge of Bougainville and focused heavily on uh, developing agriculture. So discouraging uh, movement of people to urban centers and incentivizing uh, small farmers or small holders uh, to exploit the land that they, they were uh, working. Well, that's a change. Mm. So move away from like massive plantation work towards actual self-sufficiency. That was the idea, is my understanding. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm relying on um, the book here, um, Bougainville before Bougainville. Before the conflict. <laughs> Bougainville before uh, Bougainville. Yeah, Bougainville. Before there was Bougainville, um, there was a land called Bougainville. <laughs> so diversity in crops was encouraged and pigs were in, imported as well uh, to encourage livestock livestock farming. Uh, I'm going to quote directly from one of the one of the essays in, in that book uh, by Scott McWilliam about post-war reconstruction. He says, the distribution of war damage compensation payments reduced the need to produce crops for sale. Shortages of labor for plantations raised wages, but with shortages of consumer goods, money became a display item rather than the basis for purchasing consumer goods and stimulating the search for wage employment, circulating commodities. Hmm. The war and the effects of bombing on gardens also destroyed labor discipline, especially among (laughs) young men who took to gambling with a vengeance. Right. So apparently that was introduced by the American soldiers. I think Lucky was the name of the card game that he mentioned in that essay, but um, apparently that became endemic. I think I think the intentions of those policies from the Australian government were good, but it, it just seems like, uh, based on uh, Scott McWilliams' essay, that there were uh, a lot of underlying issues here probably related to uh, the, the war itself uh, that kind of hampered those efforts. Uh, and that's just one of them, the gambling, for example. It's in terms of like, the mm. people being traumatized exactly. by the last decade of their lives. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so many natives tried to set up, and of course the, the land itself is, is, is pretty wrecked as well. Yeah. So many natives tried to set up new farming enterprises, but were provided with little support or training and therefore found it difficult to sustain these small businesses. Uh, larger landowners and companies that operated plantations were barred from expanding their holdings. Uh, so they didn't want kind of large uh, plantation concerns taking over the entire island. Yeah. Uh, so they put, they put strict limits on what they could do. But as they couldn't expand, and um, plantation companies didn't want to send their profits back to their Australian uh, parent companies. They then used the excess money to invest heavily in their own plantations and ensured that they were able to ride out price shocks making it even difficult for uh, small holding farmers to compete against them, uh, particularly when prices were squeezed. Right, because they could pay so much or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And they and they could kind of, um, I assume they could they could kind of uh, stockpile as well for when, mm. when prices were good and uh, that sort of thing. And then another key development in this period was the expansion of Bougainville's middle classes, particularly uh, indigenous rural farmers, uh, many of whom had large mm. tracts of land to exploit, and quickly became very influential within their communities. And many of these, what were referred to as Bougainville bourgeois, uh, would be very influential in the 70s and 80s. 
And then we come to it uh, in the early 1960s. Copper ore deposits were discovered in uh, Bougainville's Crown Prince Range, mm. which were subsequently explored uh, further over the next few years, leading to the discovery of some of the largest deposits in the world. A copper mine was established in 1969 by Bougainville Copper Limited, a subsidiary of the Australian company Conzinc Rio Tinto of Australia, mm. which is still a big mining concern today, I think. It definitely is. Yeah, huge. Yep. The company registered various traditional landowners of the Naisoi language group, but excluded women because of their position as traditional custodians of the land oh, under a matrilineal system. Yeah, so like I think typically, as Mark said, like men would move to their their wife's village to make their home because mm. that's where the land was yeah. owned. Yeah. And like in those disputes I mentioned earlier about churches being built in the wrong place, it was always like you built a church on my wife's land, so I'm gonna cut it down with an axe uh so excluding women from this is uh well it just shows a an ignorance of the country they're dealing absolutely. with absolutely and the the whole process was was flawed from the beginning it seems like and it's it's only going to get more complicated so the the, the yeah. nasoi as you as you alluded to joe apparently had very complex systems of land inheritance uh, and things like this a quote from again the same book uh, an essay by a guy called don vernon who says to the casual observer flying over Bougainville's rugged Crown Prince range in the mid-1960s, the idea that a developer needed to worry about land issues would have seemed ludicrous. The area was obviously thinly populated by subsistence farmers and hunter-gatherers, and closer inspection confirmed that there was very little cash cropping. Yet we were to learn that every square metre of the apparent wilderness belonged to someone (laughs) under customary land law. Mm -hmm. Land ownership arrangements among the Nisoi were more complex than any other we had experienced. If we were looking for a difficult place in which to develop a mine, the Nisoi census division of what was then the Bougainville district of the territory of Papua and New Guinea was just such a place. Yeah, land ownership uh, issues would plague the project from the beginning, as would the prevalence of so many different language groups, which made it extremely difficult Mm. to communicate effectively about any deals which were to be struck and leaving open the potential for confusion, misinterpretation, you know, backtracking, this kind of thing. However, money. Uh, so the Panguna mine represents one of the largest copper reserves in Papua New Guinea and indeed in the world, having an estimated reserve of 1 billion tons of copper ore Dear God. and 12 million ounces of gold. And the mine was once the world's largest open pit copper mine, generating around 40% of the GDP not of Bougainville but of Papua New Guinea uh, as a whole. Mm. So it's a huge money driver. I found this interesting 70s documentary on the mine, which I might include a clip of here. I think it's kind of like a, a sort of an investor video or something. It's it seems to be kind of oh wow yeah, it, yes, aimed, at, aimed at kind of giving people an idea of uh, the running of this place. Bougainville, easternmost island of Papua New Guinea. A rain-soaked volcanic outcropping whose mountains soar to 8,000 feet above the South Pacific's tropical waters. For the people of Bougainville and of all Papua New Guinea, these mountains have long been the guardian of a treasure, a hidden storehouse of mineral wealth. Commercial operation of Bougainville's copper mine was begun April 1, 1972 that one of the pre-commissioning highlights occurred in mid-November 1971 when the first load of ore was dumped into the primary crusher. 
Wharfing facilities for mine operation will include a service wharf, a 135,000 kilowatt power station, heavy and light fuel storage, and two complete towns. BCP had resolved, both in construction and later operation, to employ and train local people of Papua New Guinea. A firm policy of integration was inaugurated at the very beginning and proved highly successful. The first concentrate resulting from pre-commissioning efforts was shipped in March 1972. This vast treasure now uncovered is bringing to a formerly remote island society a new vitality through economic growth. Combined with that growth is the learning of new skills and trades that will open a totally new dimension of industrial development for the people of Bougainville and for all people of Papua New Guinea. So the mine began production in, in 1972 under the management of the Bougainville Copper Limited with the Papua New Guinea government as a 20% shareholder. Mm. And the Papua New Guinea Independence Constitution had stated that land ownership was uh, only extended to just below the surface of the soil. Uh. And this meant that all mineral rights would belong to the state. That's clever. It is. Um, so Bougainvilleans... I wonder whether that was covered in, in Nassoi inheritance. Uh, I wonder. <laughs> I do wonder. Uh, so Bougainvilleans had a different concept of land, seeing it as yeah. their lifeblood in political, emotional and social terms. Mm-hmm. And as mining operations continued and expanded and provided 45% of Papua New Guinea's national export revenue, some groups in Bougainville felt resentment, understandably, at the substantial payouts that were going to certain landowner groups and not to others. Yeah. The operations of the mine at Panguna and the sharing of his revenues has perhaps been the major sticking point between Bougainville and the Papua New Guinea government. Um, The mine was the largest non-aid revenue stream of the government of Papua New Guinea from 1975 when it became independent to the mine's closure in 1989. Why would it close, Luke? Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, the national it ain't, it ain't so, empty so Joe. much copper ore i mean it surely they didn't mine a billion oh, billion didn't. tons of copper ore no. in, in, uh... um the national government received a 20 percent share of the profit from the mine and authorized a 0.5 to 1.25 percent share to the local population Ooh. Ooh. yeah that's worse than nothing yeah it's pretty <laughs> insulting um and then, as you might be aware, copper mining is not the most environmentally sound practice. Yeah. Uh, and despite apparently the, the the practices here, the mining practices were quite modern for the time. And um, I, I did read something. Strip that said, mining. Jesus. I mean, you know, compared to other mines of the yeah. of the, a similar size and a similar scope, apparently it was it was not as destructive as it might have been, mm. uh, at least from what I read. But there was still a massive impact on the surrounding area over the years ahead, which remains evident to this day. Uh, Bougainville MP Theonila Matbob said to the the Guardian in a, in a relatively recent interview, actually, he said, our people have been living with the disastrous impacts of Panguna for many years and the situation is getting worse. The mine continues to poison our rivers with copper. Our kids get sick from the pollution and the communities downstream are now being flooded with mine waste. Some people have to walk two hours a day just to get clean drinking water. In other areas, communities' sacred sites are being flooded and destroyed. And that's, you know, 40 years later. Um, there have been talks about like the UN's environmental 
uh, wing getting involved in funding a cleanup or or the mm. company as well. But it's, I will touch it's on that a little bit yet. later. But as a result of the perceived inequalities, local residents became very unhappy with the project. And so what initially began as a as kind of concern or pressure groups quickly morphed into political movements. Mm. Indigenous people were soon directing their grievances against the Australian colonial government uh, as Papua New Guinea was still um, administered by Australia at this time uh, over the handling of the mine. And when basically nothing was done, uh, these became calls for independence. There was a legal case brought, which ended up at the High Court of Australia, which found that uh, the compensation was inadequate under our ordinary federal uh, Australian law. However, as Bougainville was an external territory and not in Australia, its residents were not offered the same protections as Australians. Mm. Which, again, has got to really rankle, to put it mildly. The Panguna mine was soon a battleground uh, in the struggle for Bougainville's autonomy. The mine was causing extensive environmental damage, as I mentioned, and was unfairly affecting local uh, residents and landowners. In 1972, uh, two prominent Bougainville politicians were killed uh, mysteriously in a car accident while visiting uh, the mainland, further souring relations between the central government and Bougainville. Hmm. And so in response, a Bougainville Special Political Committee, or BSPC, was set up to negotiate with the Papuan government on the future of Bougainville within Papua New Guinea. And there were a number of negotiations between the two sides, but in 1975, talks broke down completely. Uh, I believe the main sticking point in those talks was uh, the mine. And so on 28th of May 1975, a provisional government announced that Bougainville would secede from Papua New Guinea. And this is in the lead up to Papua New Guinea's uh, own planned independence ceremony from Australia on September 16th of the same year. So so they were kind of going to say, yeah, yeah, so, so... Australia's gone. We're we're independent now. Exactly. Yeah. You guys do your thing. We'll do our. We'll thing. do our thing. We've got a big yep. mine. We're taking the mine. <laughs> Best luck. And, uh, good luck. I think that will fund us pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> I think it probably will. Uh, there were frantic negotiations between both sides, but uh, neither could come to an agreement. And so, on the first of September that year, uh, Bougainville issues a unilateral declaration of independence on the Republic of the North Solomons. So we have a a, a new country basically republic of north solomons mm. uh from 1st of september 1975 and the 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 president of this short-lived country where it was sir alexis holy week sarai and the chairman was father john momus who we've mentioned before and we'll mention again so he, he was recently the president of of uh of the current political arrangement of bougainville hmm. so he's been he's been at this game for a while yep and so as we have an independence declaration we must have a flag and so we're going to talk a little bit about the flag uh flag talk this, yeah nice. flag talk the flag was designed by uh, jonathan and moses havini and was first raised at arawa uh, on the 1st of september 1975 again independence day during the celebrations for the unrecognized republic of the north solomons uh, and was chosen in a contest oh, and nice. yeah the flag consists of a depiction of a yup or yupe uh, which you mentioned earlier, Mark, yep. uh, superimposed over concentric discs of black and white on a cobalt blue field. Uh, and uh, as we've talked about previously, it's a traditional headdress worn by uh, men from this area. The black disc represents the distinctive skin color of the Bougainvillian people. There while it is the again. White, yeah, while the white disc represents the cap cap, a traditional symbol of authority made from mother of pearl. Hmm. And then the 24 green equilateral triangles within the cap cap 
symbolize the importance of land to the Bougainvillian people and what's underneath it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the blue field represents the ocean. Now, this is, I, I got to say, this is one of my favorite flags, I think, it's that we've flag. covered. It's a really strong flag. It's got great colors. It's a shame the the country is not going to last, or at least uh, not, not, not in this uh, decade that we're talking about right now anyway. Because unfortunately, the Republic of the North Solomons failed to gain any widespread recognition, despite its uh, really fantastic flag, and fell into squabbling with the mainland as tensions over Panguna. Unfortunately, never the criterion for uh, longevity. I mean, if I saw that thing flying at the UN, I'd be like, yeah, recognize those guys. You know what? You guys can be independent. They can design a flag. It's a very good flag. Um... They, yeah, they, they fell in squabbling with the mainland as tensions over Panguna escalated. Mm-hmm. And they also tried to join uh, later with the Solomon Islands uh, at one point figuring... Yes, you know, which is now an independent nation as well. Right? Yes, yes. But that did British, not work out either. The British had left there too. Elections were held uh, and seats were awarded under a new independent political system. But in reality, Papua New Guinea were having none of this mm-hmm. and were not going to give in easily. And so in early 1976, the Bougainvillian government realized that they would have to accept uh, Papua New Guinean sovereignty, and both sides headed to the negotiating table, eventually signing the, the so-called Bougainville Agreement, which gave the island autonomy within Papua New Guinea to okay. a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, and the Papua New Guinean government promised uh, during those negotiations full independence within five years, uh, uh, and it has still not happened. <laughs> that, did, that didn't happen. Yep. But uh, just a quick update on Panguna before I round off this section. Very, very uh, recent news, actually, which is unusual for this podcast. But uh, there's a a Guardian article from July 2021, uh, which I quoted from earlier, actually, um, which says, after 33 years, Rio Tinto to fund study of environmental damage caused by Panguna mine. And Mm. uh, they apparently have committed to a multi-million dollar environmental and human rights impact assessment of the former copper and gold mine in Panguna which was a flashpoint for Bougainville's decade-long civil war, which we'll be talking about in the next section. Right. Yeah, that's an understatement. Mm. Okay, so Joe, do you want to... Well, that's, that sets me up yep. nicely. Mm. So just at the top of this section, like, you know, there is some rough content in the civil war. Um, is it worse than the, 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 the stuff the... that Mark talked about earlier? Maybe okay. uh, more more personal, maybe sort of okay. one-on-one okay. stuff. So just to, you know, if, if that's something you don't want to listen to, um, we skip ahead. Mm. The following decade, things have come to a head in what is generally called the Bougainville Conflict uh, or the Bougainville Civil War, which I think is a little more suitable name, given it was a massive war, uh, which is an entrenched struggle between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea and between groups within Bougainville as well. So really messy period of history. Uh, John Momus has described it as the biggest conflict in Oceania since World War II, with some estimates putting casualties on the islands of up to 20,000 people. Oh my god. Uh, and more conservative estimates say maybe one to 2,000 you know, fighters directly killed in conflict. But wow. there's been a lot of uh, you know, collateral damage for want of a better word. It's hard to draw the line of who is dead because of the conflict directly mm. or just generally. Uh, so it began with, again, this idea of the traditional landowners from the Panguna mine area trying to fight against the sense of alienation from their resources, from their land, from what they consider theirs. 
And so they were maybe demanding better profit sharing or um, there was an element of trying to evict foreign labor as well. This, the, the term redskins I saw used by by um, Bougainvillians to refer to laborers from Papua New Guinea who they okay. looked down on and you know foreign capital like the Australians coming here trying to think they could buy everything. So the exact crux of the issue is is manifold it's self-determination it's it's colonization it's uh discrimination it's all kinds of things wrapped up together and just good old-fashioned that's mine back off Hmm. so by late 1988 this this committee of landowners uh had become a bit more aggressive so cousins and local leaders francis ona and perpetua serrero decided to take up arms against the Papuan government. So Ona had worked at the uh, for Bougainville Copper and had witnessed the effects of mine was having on the environment. Severo was appointed chair lady of a group of landowners and Ona the secretary general, and they demanded billions from the mine. In parallel, uh, a group called the Bougainville Revolutionary Army was being set up out of this group of landowners with Ona as its uh, leader, Francis Ona. And they essentially, they were trying to renegotiate contracts, but they basically forced, they forcibly closed the mine. There was arson, blowing up pylons, sabotage, attacks on workers, attacks on various people. A man called Sam Kaona is another guy we're going to keep meeting. He was a ex-Papua New Guinea military, and he became Ona's right-hand man as the kind of military leader of the BRA. Their attacks on employees would ultimately result in the mine closing in 1989, uh, initially, I suppose temporarily, but it hasn't reopened since. So the 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 Rio Tinto company basically refused to take much responsibility for the environmental impact that the mine was having. Mm. Uh, that had prompted all of this, and made very unrealistic kind of offers of conciliation. So uh, yeah, that was never really going to work out. They never really provided any satisfaction. So Papua New Guinea responded with force to this this. Um, I suppose you could see it as terrorism, you could see it as freedom fighting, you could see it as whatever you like, uh, e- eco, right. eco-warrior eco activity. They sent in the police riot squad, the army, and ended up displacing up to 24,000 villagers um, under the command of Jerry Singerok. But Ona proved elusive, uh, fleeing into the jungle, being difficult to track down, and the BRA were, were very effective at their guerrilla warfare. The premier of this somewhat autonomous Bougainville that Luke mentioned previously was Joseph Kabui, and Father John Momus was still in the mix there too. He was the member of parliament for Bougainville in the Papua New Guinea parliament. They supported Ona and Kaona's uh, struggle, and they demanded that the company and that Papua New Guinea recognise them as legitimate spokespeople for the, for the community, uh, and they would later get involved in the independence movement themselves. They were, you know, working with Papua New Guinea within its systems, but they, they agreed that this was um, a legitimate activity. Uh, and they were both beaten up by riot police uh, in 1989. Okay. It got quite messy internally. Like John Bika, who was a minister in the regional government, was assassinated by the BRA because he was going to go to sign some peace package with the Papua New Guinea government. So he was assassinated in front of his wife and five kids. This is where the conflict within Bougainville is almost as brutal as the conflict with outsiders. Right, And it really, the whole fight to close the mine escalated into a struggle for self-determination and indigenous control of the land and the population of Bougainville turned massively against Papua New Guinea. 
So Papua New Guinea instigated a blockade, an economic blockade of the islands. Of its own territory. On its own territory, oh, yeah. Oh, God. There were allegations of widespread human rights abuses. Uh, up to at least 1,600 homes were destroyed by the army. Uh, and many people internally displaced and, and moved into to care camps, they were called. Uh, care centres, which were uh, uh, refugee camps, essentially. Right. In all but name, and lots of bad things happened there, too. In 1990, all the foreign workers left from the closed mine, and that may have been considered a success. And Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister, Rabbi Namaliu, decides to pull out Papua New Guinea's troops and allow internationally observed disarming of the BRA. However, the police flee Bougainville in advance of this thing they see as absolute madness, leaving the BRA essentially in control of the island. There was a bit of a failed coup attempt in Port Moresby against Papua New Guinea's government, where the army thought this was a terrible idea, and state services completely collapsed. So the BRA are left with a failed state that they're nominally not in charge of, but there's nobody else. So they're the biggest armed force in a country that's now not being administered. Mm. The Australians backed up the blockade. They provided, you know, um, patrol boats and UH-1 Iroquois helicopters to, to blockade the island is Australia's proudest moment, and also provided personnel for Bougainville operations. So Francis Ona unilaterally declared independence, which is becoming a pattern, and the Bougainville interim government was set up with him as president, and the former premier of the province, uh, Joseph Kabui, as vice president in 1990. But they never really controlled the island. There was affiliated militias and gangs that were kind of, they were never under central BRA control. Some of these gangs, known as in, in Tokpistin as rascal gangs, terrorize communities. There's murders, rapes, thefts, property, just anarchy um, with different groups turning against each other. The conflict took on an ethnic character with score settling between tribes. There's 70 to 80 intertribal conflicts occurring during the blockade. Some BRA commanders had their own scores to settle as well over land disputes, sorcery local economic inequalities, whatever was going. And also the, the, the BIG, the, the independent government, was dominated by Nassau leaders, which led to discontent from other groups. So indeed, Buka, various militias in Buka gathered together with the Papua New Guinea army to drive out the BRA. Hmm. So, you know, you've got this resistance movement within Bougainville turning against the Bougainville Revolutionary Army with the support of Papua New Guinea. Okay. So... It's a civil war is the only appropriate word for this. Yeah. And many agreements were signed, but none of the parties agreed to them. Um, and Papua New Guinea army really started to make inroads back into this territory because of the disunity within the ranks of the leaders. So in 1992, there's a new prime minister in Papua New Guinea, Pius Wingti, and he is more hardline. With the help of resistance militias, the army retakes the capital of Araba. They carry out some controversial cross-border operations into the Solomon Islands, seeking seeking BRA leaders, which obviously doesn't make the Solomon Islands happy. And uh, they briefly recaptured the Panguna mine, but they, they couldn't hold it. He was replaced in 1994 by Foreign Minister Sir Julius Chan, who is the instigator of one of the most controversial issues in the Civil War uh, and the biggest turning point. So there was a, basically a stalemate in the conflict in ninety four. A ceasefire was agreed uh, with the, the BRA commander, Kaona, going to a meeting at Solomon Islands and signing up to this, this agreement. 
and an Australian-led peacekeeping force was brought in to oversee a peace conference in Arawa, and they signed the Minerajini Charter. However, the leader of the separatists, the leader of the Bougainville independent government, Francis Ona, boycotted this, these negotiations, and indeed almost all the negotiations for peace, due to concerns for his safety, while other leaders were more moderate. And so an interesting comment about this this period that like so any of the the peacekeeping forces so there's, there's another excellent book called um, reconciliation and architecture of commitment which is looking into sort of the peace process that you'd be glad to hear does arise eventually um, and they, they said that talking to officers in the peacekeeping force they all said that this conference at Arawa was a failure but civil society leaders particularly women's leaders like Josephine Harepa many of them see the Arawa peace conference as a turning point to peace it allowed the women to coordinate talking to local fighters, the talking in of local fighters across all of Bougainville, and the, the beginning of, of uh, women's peace marches across the island. And so women's groups and also the Catholic Church played huge roles in bringing groups back together who had had all these horrible uh, conflicts with each other and trying to rehabilitate fighters who had been living out in the jungle in a guerrilla lifestyle for many years at this point. So the result of this peace conference was a transitional government led by a moderate Nassioi landowner called Theodore Murray-Young. He'd been a former judge, he was a lawyer, he was a landowner around the mine, so he kind of had a stake in everything. And he was willing to work with the BRA and with the Papua New Guinea government. Uh, but also that meant neither trusted him fully. So being in the middle isn't always a good thing. Some government services, sanitation, policing kind of things started to come back. But he really couldn't rally support. And there were a few stupid things Papua New Guinea did that were like BRA leaders are coming back from a meeting in Australia and they tried to kill them. Oh my and obviously God. that wasn't great for building trust with your... Uh, yeah. But good things he did was he built up councils of elders to root government, the future government going forward. And this has lasted to now in sort of local customs, giving a place for church leaders and women's leaders and chiefs in something that could turn into a more democratic system of governments. People can elect their elders depending on their religious traditions, or they can appoint them, or they can do do whatever is appropriate for their, their community, which I think is quite a clever idea. Yeah. Uh, Bottom-up approach to reconciliation and reintegration and so on. So in 1996, Prime Minister Chan got very impatient, and he announced he would pursue a military conclusion to this situation that was going okay. But he wanted to win. Australia would not support this. And so he made the controversial choice to look elsewhere for military support and began negotiations with a London-based uh, Sandline International. What? It's a pr- private military company. Great. Um, some of its track record include involvement with trying to kill Charles Taylor in Liberia for, for their CV. The reason for this was that the, the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces were not being very successful in their attacks on the BRA. And there was a counterattack in uh, September 1996, resulted in 12 dead soldiers at Kangu Beach, which uh, was a very, is a very significant moment in the war. So Kangu was a, a refugee camp, an internally displaced person camp, where um, it was commonplace that the Papua New Guinea soldiers would, would rape the women who were living there. And this was the catalyst of the massacre. Um, And some very brave women decided to 
make a plan with defectors from the resistance who were now swinging back to supporting independence. Uh, they lured some of the soldiers down to the beach with the promise of a volleyball game. And then on a signal, they all dropped to the ground and the men emerged from the jungle with guns and mowed down the uh, soldiers. Oof. Wow. So that is pretty dark stuff. Quite mm. a s- strong image. Mm. And it this is conceived as a turning point in the war because they, they ended up with five hostages, which became a bargaining ch- chip. Huge cache of um, of arms, some of which are still out there. And basically the Prime Minister lost confidence in his army and decided that the only way forward was uh, mercenaries. And the Papua New Guinea government blamed the Premier of the transitionary government, which is potentially why in 1996 he was assassinated. He was visiting his wife's village of Kapana in Suai, and he was uh, shot at dinner in front of his 10-year-old son. We were caught by surprise when a gunshot sounded. We were still eating when my father died with food still in his mouth. Oh my god. The United Press International wrote, he was seen by many as the greatest hope for peace in the strife-torn Ireland. And peace process worker Alan Weeks said that he could have been the Nelson Mandela of Bougainville. But uh, it's still not really clear who killed him. There there was a commission of inquiry that never published its report. It's heavily suspected it was the Papua New Guinea army. Why would you not publish the report? Because it said who did it. So it's widely assumed it was the the government um, or or some, some army figures, whether with permission or not. And his his uh, his daughter Lorraine recognised one of the men she saw, and she's like she's seen him at other reconciliation events since. Like she knows who did it, and that's a real feature of this. It was so such an intimate conflict yeah. um, that everyone knows who disappeared their relatives or who shot their brother or whatever. And the fact that reconciliation becomes possible in the future is amazing. The Sandline affair was the defining moment, though. Tens of millions of dollars put on the table to get um, this um, this mercenary company to come in and, and assassinate the Bougainville independence government leadership. A contract was signed in January 1997. In February, um, Bougainville Copper Limited shares dramatically jumped on the Australian Stock Exchange, which suggests some people knew what was going to happen. Right. Try to get the mine reopened, I guess. Yep. And... Um, Mary Louisa Callahan broke the story in The Australian and led to protests, massive opposition. The Papua New Guinea military commander, Jerry Singriok, um, having been initially on board with the idea, once he saw the public uh, opinion, decided to cancel the joint operation unilaterally. He uh, arrested the Sandline personnel when they arrived and called a press conference to announce that before the Prime Minister received his letter telling him that was the plan. Jeez. He opposed the plan to mortgage the island of Bougainville and other resource-rich areas to foreigners. So he saw which way the tide was going and the Prime Minister ultimately had to resign to end this deadlock with his commander who uh, public opinion was very much behind. Huge protests everywhere. So, 1997 was a good year. Um... Bill Skate was elected the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea and he promised that peace in Bougainville would be the highest priority. Uh, Peter Barter's agreement on peace was brought forward. He was the, the Minister for Bougainville Affairs and New Zealand diplomats stepped into the void and really brought this over the line. They hosted a load of negotiations in Burnham and in Lincoln over the next number of months and years. And most critically, the Sandline Affair allowed the BRA to see who their enemies were. 
right. that allowed moderates in the BRA and moderates in the Papua New Guinea government to actually find that maybe they weren't that different. But the guys who wanted mercenaries to kill them all were... Yeah, it's a bit different when you're sitting across the table. Massive talks in Burnham in 1997 led to the beginning of a peace process. 100 community leaders from uh, Bougainville went there. Basically everyone except Francis Ona, who was still in the jungle, being a holdout to any progress towards peace. And five hostages from Kanga Beach were released to show good faith to the Papua New Guinea government. Um... A resistance leader, Sam Aka Akoitai, became the government's minister for Bougainville Affairs, so he was from Bougainville and was now in charge of that. Uh, and really these meetings were fundamentally about reconciliation within Bougainville, mm. so building together, re-knitting together all these groups. And there was this process called called uh, tarot or vomiting, like emotional vomiting that seems to have been an important part of it, where like everyone could say what they wanted Okay. And shout and scream and get it all out with uh, New Zealand military officials sitting in between them to make sure it didn't get out of hand. Okay. And this process was apparently very helpful over the course of the of the whole meeting to, you know, you could shout to someone, you, you murder my brother and I, I hate you and get that out, not try to be polite. Oh, that's go with, within Bougainville culture, this is an important process of, of reconciliation. Hmm. So they went through this together and they... And again, the women played an important role of bringing people together and bringing ideas between groups. So, 1998, Vice President Kabui broke with Ona and signed a peace agreement at Christchurch. There was a truce. There was disarmament planned across the island. A truce monitoring group made up of New Zealand, Fijian and Nivanuatu soldiers moved in to watch over the disarmament and the decommissioning of arms. Papua New Guinea army began to withdraw. An Australian-led peace monitoring group took over for a longer period of time, and UN started to support this peace process. So an interesting point that the, the weight of social disapproval from renouncing reconciliation was reported to be enor- enormous. So if people signed up to reconciliation between communities that had wronged each other, the interview with, with Kabui, he said, the moment the hatchet is buried, it stays buried. Anyone seen to be digging up the buried hatchet will get the most severe punishment. This means death. So people would like kill their own kin who were trying to dig up old wounds. Wow, wow. That's how serious people got into reconciliation, which is wild. There was a peace agreement signed in 2001 that included the promise that a referendum will be held within 20 years and the autonomous Bougainville government was set up. There's kind of a, a coda here that Francis Ona never engaged with any of this peace stuff. He was the guy who started off the, the, the BRA. Yeah. He became more militant. He occupied the mine site and about a quarter of the island around Panguna and made it a no-go zone. And he even declared himself the king of Bougainville. Mm. And, and this he was supported by a like a con artist, the leader of a pyramid scheme called Uvistrat. The guy describes a silver-tongued con man, Noah Musingu. And basically a huge majority of families in Bougainville have invested in his pyramid scheme slash religious movement slash... Oh, whatever as of loads of people in australia and papua new guinea and fiji and he i don't know it sounds like a complete complete chancer and he convinced uh ona that he could make himself king of an independent bougainville uh ona however died in 2005 of malaria okay and never coming out of the jungle never coming from the the in the in the jungle i guess and the uh financier noah masinku is now king david pay of the kingdom that ona set up 
modeling himself as a king, wearing a crown that says king on it. Oh, jeez. And basically oh, being a robot to progress because he has guns and nobody else has guns. The Bougainville Police don't have guns. crown that says king on it. Yep. The Papua New Guinea <laughs> army can't do military stuff in Bougainville because of the peace agreements. So he's the only guy with guns, really. And it's, Let's just leave him alone. Yeah. Okay. It's still, still a going concern. But over the coming decades, various of the leaders of the, the, the conflict would become president. You know, Joseph Kabui was president from 2005 till his death in 08. Uh, he was the first president of, of the autonomous Bougainville. He was succeeded by uh, James Tanis, who historically washed the feet of the former Papua New Guinea Prime Minister, Sir Julius Chan, in a 2009 reconciliation ceremony. So this became a whole thing of like big, showy, meaningful ceremonial um, reconciliation between between groups Who's the most sorry? Papua New Guinea and I'm even sorrier than you and I am the yep. most humble mm. and then in 2010 John Momus was elected president and he was president up until very recently uh, overseeing the most recent event and that's of vital importance in Bogan's history which is the the ultimate point of the peace process and the disarming was to make way for a referendum and I think in Ireland, we were all surprised in 2018 to see that Bertie Ahern was named the chairman of the Referendum Commission. Mm. Uh, he was the former Taoiseach of Ireland, the former Prime Minister of Ireland, who played a big role in the Northern Irish peace process. So it kind of does make a certain amount of sense. There are yeah. parallels between that kind of intercommunity conflict. When you were talking earlier about like, you know, this person, like I read a, I read a lot on the Troubles last year. Mm. And when you were talking earlier about like this, you know, the people that killed your family or your, shot your brother yeah, or whatever, yeah. like that reminded me a lot of Northern Ireland as well. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when you think it through, it, it's a it's a very logical choice, but it's just not someone we expected to see on TV in the tr- in a tropical volcanic island. Mm. Uh, and they had the task of completing a polling list and I was figuring out who's eligible to vote. That was difficult. Wow. Having mail-only polling stations for people who are, are doing their UPE uh, ceremony. Of course. Uh, lots of other considerations. But eventually in 2019, a series of long, quiet queues across the island voted a non-binding referendum on independence, choosing independence or greater autonomy, voted 98.3% for independence. Mm. So... It's still unclear what that means. It's up to the Papua New Guinea government to decide that. It's non-binding, yeah. And uh, I've spoken to someone with first-hand knowledge of the process, and they pointed out an important thing that is, it's very rare for a country to be allowed to secede peacefully. And so whatever happens, and I've seen John Momus talk about this too, that like whatever happens, it was a really important exercise in like a moral victory for saying, this is what we want. Mm. We want to determine ourselves. And whatever form that takes, which is still a long way off, it could be a very large amount of autonomy with still some foreign affairs being controlled by Papua New Guinea. That's unclear, but Papua New Guinea is never going to directly rule this place again. I think that much as as a equal part to all the other provinces. And so hopefully Bougainville will kind of set its own agenda um, in a meaningful way from now on. Okay. K- kind of hopeful end? That's, I hope I think so. so. Yeah, the longest running and, and arguably most successful peace process in the world, I think, after such a brutal conflict. Yeah, the, the peace is only successful in proportion to the thing that was the not the peace. So I don't know. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of circumspect about kind of hands waving in the air as to as positivity of that. So there we are. 
Okay, I, I I looked a little bit into sports. Um, they play rugby rugby league, huh. which is affiliated with the Papua New Guinea uh, Rugby Football League. Oh, and course, a number of yeah. uh, Bougainvilleans have played for the Papua New Guinea ro- national rugby team, including Bernard Wakatsi, Joe Katsi, Lau Atoy, and uh, Chris Sirosi. I don't know any of them. Yeah, they were mentioned on the Wikipedia page, so they, they might enough. be uh, might be notable. You make the cut, guys. They also won the 2017 National Boxing Championships, were, which were held in uh, Arawa. And there's been some notable boxers uh, competing in, in Commonwealth boxing and also there's a famous netball player who's played professionally in australia uh, maleta roberts Hmm. she also competed at the commonwealth games so of course because they're ex ex british colonies Commonwealth games yeah so that's kind of it good 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 luck bogotville yeah (laughs) you can find more episodes of this podcast at 80dayspodcast.com or in your friendly local podcast player uh you can also find us on social media uh we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we're posting some some stuff on the Instagram these days uh, after we release an episode. So if you're looking for pictures of the flag or the mine or whatever, they'll probably be on Instagram as you're listening to this. And if you want to do us a favor, uh, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people to find the show or just tell a friend that you like the show and that you enjoyed it. You can also find links to all the stuff that we talked about pretty much in, in the show notes. Uh, which should be available in your podcast player or else they're on the website. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can visit us at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Uh, you can get bonus content and uh, postcards sent by us and different bits and pieces. You can vote on, on future episodes and things like that. If you join us over on patreon.com. That's it for this episode. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Cheers, bye. Can you behind? Be